Good evening. Welcome. Well, tonight in our study through the Bible, we are going to be looking at the book of Philemon, uh, the shortest book in the New Testament, and that's why I can't figure out why I have so many notes. Um, there's some kind of inverse relationship because the smaller the book, the more there is to talk about. Actually, fascinating book in so many ways, so unique. Let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dig in. Father God, we just thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for your word. I, I thank you, Lord, the way you reveal your truth to us through your word in a way that exposes the truth about us to ourselves. Lord, that thing that gives us the ability to really connect in a meaningful way in the depths of our hearts as we have this divine conversation with you. So speak to us tonight, Lord, and not just about the facts, the information of this uh, text, but Lord, about how it affects the way we understand you and our relationship with you and living for you and following you, we ask in Jesus' holy name, amen. So, the book of Philemon, written by the Apostle Paul, as he clearly says, uh, in verse 1, he starts, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. It's interesting that he says he's, a, he's in prison when he's writing this, but he's not a prisoner of Rome. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul understood the context of his imprisonment as being the plan of God for his life. There may have been points in that experience where he sat back and thought, God, what are you doing? You ever been there? God, why am I in this situation at this time? But at this point in the journey, Paul was very clear and saw very clearly what God was doing, the way he was being used, that for in the past, he'd always had to travel from place to place to place in order to preach the gospel. Suddenly, God has him imprisoned, and everybody is coming to him. All the traffic is flowing to him, and of course, we have some of the most uh, important letters of the New Testament being written during this time. In fact, based upon this letter alone, we're pretty certain that Paul had a great amount of correspondence that has been lost to us. Uh, God, for his own, in his wisdom, saw not a necessity to preserve it, but thankfully, we have this one preserved. He's writing to an individual. And that really makes it stand out. He, to a man by the name of Philemon, after which the book is named, he says of Philemon, he says, our dear friend and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, who is most likely Philemon's wife. It's a feminine name, very common name in that part of the world, and it's very likely that this was his, uh, Philemon's wife. And then to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Uh, have no idea who Archippus is. We have one other reference to him. In Colossians 4, uh, Paul makes the comment writing to the church in Colossia, which we believe Philemon was also part of the church in Colossia. He says, tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. And I know I, in reading that, we know exactly what Paul's talking about, right? Well, if you do, you're better than me, because I have no idea what Paul's saying to him other than the fact that probably as a general rule, we should finish what God tells us to start. I, I think that's the takeaway that I get from that passage. Maybe one day I'll have deeper revelation. But Archippus may have been, some people have suggested it was Philemon's son, some, maybe it's the pastor of the church that met in his house, uh, but really we have no certain information about him. What's interesting, though, is that Philemon is the host of a house church. And uh, most people are surprised to find out that the early church had no official buildings. They met in homes out of necessity because they were not a legal religion. 
In Rome, you had legal religions and you had illegal religions. And Judaism was a legal religion. That's why they were able to build synagogues and worship. But, and, and many other religions were legal, but Christianity was not a legal religion. That's why in the first 200 years of the church, we have 25 separate persecutions by the Roman government, official persecutions, not counting an untold number of unofficial ones that just happened in random places and ways, but persecutions because they did not legally have the right to be a church. So they met in homes. And... Uh, in fact, it wasn't until 313 A.D. when Emperor Constantine won the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312, and he himself converted to Christianity and gave what's called the Edict of Milan in 313, authorizing that Christianity was now a legal religion. In fact, it was an, a writ of tolerance. Basically, you were allowed in Rome from that point on to worship anything you wanted. There was no restrictions but as it would be because the emperor himself was a professing Christian, he favored the Christian church. And this is, has interesting impact upon Christianity because prior to this, when the church is persecuted, they're also pretty pure. But once they come under the, this favor of the Roman government itself, there are a lot of people who now want to become part of the church so they can be on the best graces with the government. And the emperor began to bring Christians into his government. He was the first one to hold church councils that would bring uh, the church pastors or bishops from all over the world together. It was all sponsored by the emperor. Now, there's endless debates. Was Constantine truly a Christian or was just a political ruse? Nobody knows for sure the answer to that. But the bottom line was it changed the political situation and the fortunes of the church. Soon you began to see large basilicas. A basilica really was a, a name for a public building like City Hall. Suddenly these large basilicas were being built to house the Christians because the church grew exponentially when it became not only legal, but it came, there was a certain profitability to it as well because you had the favor of the government. And that's always, we find historically, whenever Christianity begins to become the predominant religious system within a culture, it also begins to become corrupted. The church is always healthiest where it's suffering. I hate to tell you that, but all at the same time saying, look around. <laughs> <laughs> and you find that, you know, in a country where everybody's a Christian because you're an American, right? Uh, you know, or at least you vote Republican. Well, at least you used to. Anyway, but so, you know, it, it's just this kind of thing that happens where it begins to change uh, people's motivation. It no longer is something that costs me, but it's something that actually profits me. It can change the dynamics within the church. Suffering, I'm afraid, is, is good for us, and I don't say that happily. I'm just saying it's a fact that when we're desperate for God, we send, tend to act with desperation in our praying and our seeking of His face. Well, anyway, house churches were, were literally the homes of wealthy converts. Uh, the average person, which made up 98.5% of the population, lived in such small confines that there was no way that a group of people could meet. So that usually it was a man who, or a family who owned a, a very large property and it had a large space within it and also had the material resources to provide food and the, and the services because the communion meals were just that. They were an entire meal. 
they didn't just have the wine and the bread. They actually had an entire banquet that they would celebrate together. And another thing that tells us that Philemon himself was a wealthy man is the fact that this letter is regarding a runaway slave. And contrary to a lot of people's understanding, slavery was, was uh, widespread. We'll talk about that in a moment. But only 1.5% of the people owned 50% of the slaves. So that only the very wealthy people could actually afford to have a slave. Most people who are freemen didn't have the resources to own a slave, and therefore it really became primarily the, a resource that was available to the wealthy that enabled them to live the life of luxury and convenience that they had. So these are a couple of things that we can tell pretty clearly about, about Philemon. He was a wealthy man. He was a Christian. He was certainly one of the leaders of the church in Colossia, a man well-known and influential, and a slave owner. Now, it's possible that Paul had never met Philemon. And uh, this is something, again, people speculate on. But uh, Paul, even though he refers to Philemon as, quote, he says in verse 1, his dear friend and fellow worker. In verse 17, he calls him his partner or literally his comrade or companion. But to this point, Paul himself had never been to the city of Colossia. He tells us that much in Colossians 2.1. He makes a reference. He says, all who have not met me personally. So Colossia is one of those cities like Laodicea and others that surrounded the greater city of Ephesus. Paul centered his ministry for quite some time in Ephesus. But it was others who went out and evangelized and planted the churches and it's most likely that Paul has never, in fact, met him. In fact, he says in verses 4 and 5, he makes a comment about to Philemon. He says, I, I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus. So it's not something he knows personally. It's something that he's heard about. I've heard about your faith. Yet, in verse 19, when Paul is making his arguments to Philemon, he says to him, you owe me your very self. In other words, he's saying, your soul's salvation is a consequence of my ministry to you, and therefore you have an obligation to me in that regard. We'll explain what Paul means by that as we go on further. Again, we, we refer to this as one of Paul's prison letters because um, three times in verses 1, 19, again in verse 23, uh, he makes reference to being a prisoner. Uh, two times he speaks about being in chains in verses 10 and 13. And so it's very obvious he makes this reference to his imprisonment and to his fact that he was uh, wearing chains as a prisoner probably written about the same time as the letter to the Colossians. In fact, they may have been taken there by the same carrier in the year 60 AD. Uh, if you recall, Paul, the first time he was in prison in Rome, was there uh, over two years, and he was eventually acquitted and released um, later on. Uh, and it's interesting because even though at that time uh, Caesar Nero was the emperor, uh, Seneca was the kind of like the prime minister and he was a very fair and, and uh, just man and probably saw, and he was the one that really carried the responsibility of these hearings and he was the one most likely who acquitted Paul. Later on, Seneca is arrested and executed by Nero and Nero takes over uh, all the responsibilities and uh, the guy was a raving lunatic. I don't know what else, you know, pretty much history has brought up. The guy was insane. Uh, what was the cause of his insanity? I don't know, but he was, he was pretty nuts. And uh, that's why the Praetorian Guard eventually murdered him and uh, setting up a whole chain of events that ultimately led to the Jews' revolt against Rome when he was murdered. Anyway, I digress. I could keep on going like this for hours and you would just be 
really tired of hearing it. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> so anyway, what is the letter really uh, regarding? Well, Philemon, keep in mind, is, as I said, the most unique of all Paul's surviving letters uh, because it's the only one that's written as a matter of personal correspondence. Now, you might say, well, didn't he write to Timothy twice and didn't he write to Titus? Yes, but he wrote to them in their official capacity as pastors of churches, and it's also very clear from the text they were intended to be read to the church. So this wasn't just private correspondence. This letter amazingly survives is private correspondence. Uh, Philemon obviously felt compelled somehow to share this with the congregation and allow this to become made public, uh, and uh, which speaks encouragingly to the idea that he actually heeded Paul's counsel and advice that we'll look at in a moment. Uh, the subject of it, of course, is runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. Notably, the, word One the name Onesimus means profitable or useful. That was, he was a Greek, and he was a Greek slave, and, and uh, we don't know how he became enslaved. A lot of people were enslaved for different reasons. You can be enslaved because of debt. You can be enslaved because your city was conquered by the Romans, and they took everybody in the city captive and made them slaves. Uh, there's any number of ways. You could have been kidnapped by pirates. Pirates like to kidnap people and sell people as slaves. So there were a lot of different ways that a person could be enslaved, but Onesimus was a slave whose name may have been given to him by his, his lord, in fact, and his master, but he was called profitable. Uh, he managed to escape he was a runaway, and he made it all the way to Rome, and that was usually the target for many runaways, because if you get to Rome, you could get lost in the crowd. Rome was a city of a million people at this time. Rome, there was not another city with a million people on it until London in 1850. So you get an idea, this, this was a massive city, and we're talking about buildings no higher than five stories high, so that covered a great mass of territory, and you could really get lost in many of the different sections of this huge city and hide out without discovery. It's a lot like the idea of being an illegal alien might be today, somebody coming across the border illegally and hiding within one of the metropolitan cities, picking up jobs for cash and so forth. Very similar dynamic that would happen with uh, many of these slaves who would run away. Uh, if they got caught, it's any number of things can be happened. They certainly would be beaten, uh, but they could even be killed. They could be executed uh, because a slave under Roman law was a living tool. And the argument that Livy uses uh, in writing about slavery says that if, if, my, if my hammer offends me and I throw it into the fire or throw it into the water, that's my business and it's, it's my loss and it's nobody else's business. So the same with a slave. If I want to kill my slave, that's my business. So in a sense, a slave had no rights, and yet ironically, by law, slaves had a number of rights that are quite surprising under Roman law that was very different even from our own situation. Slavery was what we call ubiquitous. It was everywhere. So and how, how ubiquitous? Well, 50% of the people living in Rome were slaves. So half the population, 500,000 people who lived in the city of Rome were actually slaves. Add to that that if you look over at just Italy, not just Rome, that 35 to 45% of the people living in Italy were slaves, usually working on large plantations and farms. And even through the empire as a whole, someplace between 8 and 10% of the entire empire were slaves. So we estimate that it was someplace between 50 and 60 million people in the Roman Empire who were slaves. They were property and not considered to be uh, people in the fullest sense. 
Well, it's interesting because Paul apparently led um, uh, Onesimus to Christ. And this is quite miraculous again. We're talking about a city of a million people, and here's one runaway slave, and he connects with the apostle Paul, who himself is a prisoner. This is what we call a divine coincidence, right? This is something that just, it just doesn't happen. And Paul leads this young man to Christ. In fact, he says in verse 10 of him, he says, my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. In other words, a reference of the same way he talked about Titus being my son in the faith and, and Timothy. Now he talks about Onesimus. He says, he is my son who became my son while I was a prisoner in Rome. Well, uh, although Rome was, you know, as I said, slavery was everywhere and it was significant because the Roman Empire literally ran on slaves. It was totally dependent upon it. They did everything from manual labor to managing the empire. In fact, there are some men who served in the highest positions within the Roman Empire who were essentially slaves. Uh, in fact, the, the great history book by Jos Flavius Josephus. Uh, Josephus was a, uh, a Jew of the priestly families, one of the priestly families who was captured by the Romans uh, by the Ro and, and, and basically taken in by Vespasian, the commanding general under Nero who was uh, invading Judea after they rebelled. <clears throat> and... Um, he, Flavius Josephus, Josephus predicted that Vespasian would become the next emperor. So Vespasian just kept him around to see if it came true. And sure enough, he became the next emperor and he was adopted by Vespasian as his son. That's why Vespasian was a Flavian. That was a family name. And that's why we call him Flavius Josephus because he was part of the family and ended up living the last part of his life in, in Rome. Uh, wrote a great expansive history of the, battle, the, the Jewish wars and also uh, the history of the, uh, the Jewish people, which uh, you can still read today. It's been translated into English a couple of different times. But the thing is that here was men like him who could be in the highest of positions, even adopted into the family and given the right of citizenship just on the whim of the, uh, their, their owner. These were oftentimes not just people who were laborers, they were people who were highly educated. And so they became many times the teachers and the doctors and things of that nature, even though they were property, they were held in the highest positions. Most people don't realize gladiators who were the super sports heroes of the day, were slaves. They were all slaves. There, were, there was only a couple of people who just simply went, became gladiators because they thought it was macho. But slaves, gladiators were, were slaves, and they were considered to be some of the most important people within the Roman world. So their view of slavery was vastly different from ours. Sadly, many of them lived in, in, in just abject hardship, where they were laborers who would be worked to death, especially if they were sent to work in the mines. But also they were oftentimes the prostitutes as well as the cooks and the cleaners and everything else that, that kept the system going. Slavery in the Roman world was very different than it was in the Americas. I mean, he, first of all, slavery in, in the Roman world was not based upon race had no different, there was no distinction. In fact, we find in the ancient world there was very little distinction or even concern about the color of people's skins. That's a very more modern hang-up. But they just basically took people as they, they were, and, and there seems to be no barriers in terms of what people could do or accomplish based upon race. So anybody could be a slave for that matter. 
But oftentimes, slaves were allowed to own their own property, to, to save their own money, to retain their personal possessions, even receive wages, and eventually they could even go to court and sue their master for unfair treatment. It just got, it, it's really kind of confusing to us when we think about being a slave. Sometimes a slave could have a private business that he ran on the side while he was working for his master, if his master allowed him to do it. So it was a, it's a very different dynamic. And, and thirdly, I think most notably, um, that they could purchase their freedom. In other words, a lot of slaves, if they were able to restore up and save up their monies, they could one day go to their master and say, here, I want to buy my freedom. And they could buy themselves out of slavery and become a free man. And their children after them could also, were, if they were born to a free man, their children became free. Remember Paul said he was born free? Well, he probably, his father received his citizenship or his freedom either by purchasing it or doing something of, of valor that distinguished him or he had an owner that gave it to him. But Paul, being born to a free man, then himself became a, not only a free man, but a citizen of Rome. So slaves could actually become full-blown citizens. Uh, in fact, what's interesting is that Three of the earliest bishops of Rome, Clement I, Pius I, and Calixtus I, were all former slaves. So here you have bishops had been slaves who were now running the entire church of Rome. So there was an interesting egalitarianism to the way that they, they, they treated these things. But um, still, there were people like Onesimus who chafed against the idea of being under the yoke, and understandably so, uh, because many times they lived lives that were abused or they simply didn't like being limited and forced to do something that they didn't want to do. Because the one thing about being a slave is if you were made to be a cook, you couldn't go to your master and say, you know, I, I'm really not getting into the cook thing. I, I really have always wanted to be a metal work. I mean, it just didn't work that way. <laughs> you, don't, you know, slaves don't pick their occupation. They don't pick their pay. They don't pick their hours which makes me remind you that you are a slave, by the way. But anyway, you, you don't have that choice. You're subject to the will of your master. And so there were those who simply would not accept that, and they would make their exit as best they could. But the injustice of slavery was not lost on the early church leaders. And this is one thing that, that's kind of sad, because the overthrowing of slavery in the world, especially in the Western world, was the consequence of Christianity, the teachings of Christianity. It was the only philosophy, theology that taught that slavery was something that should be uh, done away with. But what the early church did was they presented a very revolutionary way of looking at slaves. For example, when Paul says in Galatians 3.26, he says, you are all sons of God. Keep in mind, he's talking to churches which as many as half the people in the church were slaves. So he says, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he adds, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. It's hard for us to grasp how revolutionary that comment was, <laughs> that there's no male or female in a culture where men were superior to women and nobody was arguing that point. When he says there is no difference between the slave or the free man, this was outrageous stuff to say. In fact, writing to Colossians, and he says, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. But again, Christ is, in, is all and is in all. So one of the things that made Christianity really, really revolutionary and, and, and 
controversial in the ancient world was it said that people like women and slaves could have the same identical relationship with God that men had and free men had. That the rich man was not any holier than the poor man. That the weak man was not any lesser than the, than the mighty man. That there was this equality. This, and so this, this egalitarianism, this equality that existed within the church uh, which did not exist anywhere else in society. And it explains in part why the Romans saw it as such a threat to their social structure. But rather than outright condemning slavery, <clears throat> what Paul did and the other writers of the New Testament did is, is undermine its foundation. Uh, for example, in Ephesians 6, 5, and again in, in 3.22, pretty much the same statement, Paul says, Obey your earthly matters, masters, he's writing to the slaves, with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. He says, like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Now, why would Paul say that? Well, he explains really in 1 Timothy 6, 1, where he says, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Peter says something almost the, exactly the same when he says, if you behave with anger, resentment, rebellion, disobedience, dishonesty, because it was Two things were very common with slavery in, throughout history. One is you steal from your master every chance you get. And secondly, you work at as slow a pace as you can possibly imagine, you know, because there's no advantage. You're not getting ahead by working harder. And Paul says what happens is you become viewed negatively and the witness to the church is bad. The Christ becomes besmirched because they draw the conclusion this is what you get when your slave becomes a Christian. He's good for nothing. Well, he says, let's prove them just the opposite. Let's work hard. Let's be industrious. Let's be respectful. Let's win their honor so that it will, we will be an adornment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he even says in Titus 6, he says, to those who, who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. And you understand the natural dynamic? Wait a minute. You're a Christian, I'm a Christian, we're all one in Christ. Therefore, I'm not going to show you respect because you're not showing me respect. You should set me free. You should release me from my slavery. But Paul goes on and he says, um, because they are brothers, instead they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and are dear to them. And again, it's always the idea of loving your enemies and returning love to those, even to those who are not showing it to you. Again, to the Corinthians, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, 20, he says, each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? In other words, when you were saved? Don't let it trouble you. He says, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So Paul isn't saying stay in slavery, but he says, if you can be free, if you can gain your own freedom, then take it by all means. But he goes on to say there's a higher principle here. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's free man. You come to Christ, you're free in Christ. And you have to understand what a message of hope that was to somebody who was in the bondage of a life of slavery. That my, my dignity isn't defined or my lack of dignity uh, determined by the fact that I'm a slave. I can have dignity as God's free man. I'm free in Christ despite my circumstances. 
It's one of those kind of concepts that many people who have come to Christ within prison have come to realize that they found a greater freedom in prison than they ever knew when they were outside of prison because they got set free by Christ. He goes on, similarly, he who was a free man when he was called in Christ, called is Christ's slave. And this becomes a thematic message of Paul. He says, you were bought at a price. Do not become the slaves of men. In other words, if you, view your, if you behave uh, carnally or rebelliously because you're a slave, you become enslaved. The person you hate becomes your master, and that defines who you are. He says, instead, if you define yourself by Christ, you become free in Christ, and you're no longer the slave of man. You're now the slave of Christ. He says, brothers, each man as, as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. So Paul begins with this whole idea that there's this, this equality in Christ that we all share, but he also says there's an accountability to the masters. And I, this often gets overlooked because Paul, in the same breath, turns to those who are masters of slaves and said, you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Again, Paul is saying to the slave owner, don't forget the fact that you are no better than them and you're going to have to give account to God for your treatment of these people. In Colossians 4.1, he says, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you also have a master in heaven. So he emphasizes the fact you may be on top right now, but there's an accountability. And when you stand before the presence of the God of the universe, God is not going to look at you as master and him and slave. You're both going to have to give account of your life on the same measuring stick. Uh, again, this had a, a powerful impact upon many, which led them to release their slaves. Uh, Paul's feelings about slavery comes out very clearly because essentially he says, thirdly, that we're all slaves anyway. In fact, Paul references himself this way over and over again. And keep in mind, to be called a slave was considered to be the lowest thing that you could say to somebody. To say to them, you're nothing but a lousy slave is, was, was the most serious insult that you could give to somebody. And Paul repeatedly calls himself a slave. Why was he doing that? Well, in part, it's to understand our relationship to our master in heaven. But secondly, half the church are slaves. What is Paul doing? He says, I'm becoming like them. Even though I'm a free man, even though I'm a Roman citizen, I am letting myself be identified with this group of people. I am not better than them. And that's why writing the Romans, he says, Paul, and fortunately our, our English versions always translate it servant of G Christ Jesus. The word is doulos. A doulos is a slave. He's literally saying, Paul, a slave. And in Galatians 1.10, he says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. In Colossians 1.7, you learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow slave, who is a faithful minister of Christ. In James 1.1, James starts off and says, James, a slave of God. Peter says the same thing. Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Christ Jesus. Even the book of Revelations begins by saying in the first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his, and again, it's translated in our English as servants. It's interesting, the same word, a, couple, a chapter later, uses the word, translates the same word in English as slave. That kind of stuff drives me crazy. But anyway, he says, Paul, he says that he showed to his slaves what must soon take place. 
So it's the idea that we have compassion with the idea of being slaves because we ourselves are enslaved to our master. And whatever you yield your members to, Paul says in Romans 6, which we'll look at this weekend, he says, whatever you yield yourself to serve, that thing becomes your master, you become its slave. And so Paul's exhortation to Romans 6 is, enslave yourself to Christ so that you aren't enslaved to your own flesh, your own passions, your own drives and desires. But also, I think next, he, he appeals not only to the egalitarian issue, the action that we're all slaves in Christ, but that we are called by brotherly love to treat each other differently. In fact, he says to Philemon in verse 15, he says, perhaps the reason he was separated from you, and nice way of saying he ran away from you, uh, for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Do you see how Paul just changed the status of Onesimus? He says he was a slave before, but now he's your brother in Christ. You need to begin to see him as your brother. You need to see him as a man. You need to see him as a, a dear friend in Christ and no longer to view him as a slave. Uh, again, Paul did not overtly challenge the system of slavery. To understand it in that culture, in that time, it wouldn't have made any sense. It would have had just the opposite effect. But at the same time, he never sanctified slavery. In fact, he undermines its foundation by focusing on how the conversion of a believer fundamentally transforms personal relationships. That when people get saved, it changes how they relate to other people based, if nothing else, upon what Jesus simply said in Matthew 19, 19. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. So how can I fulfill the most basic commandment of Christ to love my neighbor as I love myself and keep him in the bondage of slavery? The simple pressure to conform to that began to overturn the whole system of slavery within the Roman world, at least within the Christian community. So, which brings me to the outline of this letter. Uh, I entitle it just Paul's Appeal to Philemon uh, because Paul uses that word appeal. And I, and I have three very simple sections. First, Paul talks about, he said to Philemon, my love and respect for you. In other words, instead of Paul coming out of the blocks insulting him, he comes out affirming him which is a you know, technique that you may want to try out. <laughs> you know, somebody you're irritated with, you know, and the natural response is to kind of puff your chest up and you know, swell the veins in your neck and go, what do you think you're doing? Well, in fact, it's so much more effective to begin that conversation by saying, you know, I could be wrong. Maybe it's just my impression. I know you're a great person. I know that you would never do anything to, to offend or to hurt me because I know you're not that kind of person. I just wanted to point to something in case you didn't notice it. You're standing on my foot. You know, it's, that, it's, it's this whole idea. Paul always begins with commending people in all of his letters. He's not, he's not, it's not empty flattery. He's just beginning to, he begins by affirming the value of the person he's talking to before he gets to the business at hand. And he starts referring to him again as my dear friend, fellow worker. He calls him further on a fellow soldier. That is, in, in Christ, he says, I thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Now, put yourself in Philemon's case. Suddenly, this courier comes to your house, and he has this scroll, and you open it up. You see the seal of the apostle on it, and you open it up and think, 
wow, I got the letter from the apostle. And he starts reading it. Getting a letter was a big deal anyway, but getting one from the apostle was, must have been amazing. And he starts off and saying, you know, I just, I thank God every time I remember you because I hear about your faith and in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. All the saints, Philemon, your love for all the saints, the ones who were there and the ones who stole from you and ran away to Rome. All the saints, Philemon. <laughs> I love this. This is so beautiful. Anyway, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith, literally saying that you, you're living it out to the full extent so that you will have full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Philemon, I just want you to grow in the fullness of Jesus and experience everything he has for you. He says, and then he says, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Right about this point, Philemon is feeling really good. He's just been complimented by the apostle in the most kind and gracious way. And then Paul moves more into the text where he moves from his love and respect for Philemon to talk about Philemon's love and respect for him or at least the respect he should show him. He says, I could be bold and ordered you to do what you ought to do. <laughs> I love that. Man, I, you know, I have the authority just to tell you, set this guy free and don't punish him. He says, I could just do that. But then he says, but I, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I appeal to you on the basis of love. He goes on again. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. Remember his name means profitable or useful. Who became my son while I was in change. And then he says, formerly he was unprofitable. He was, un he was useless. But now he has truly become Onesimus. Now he has truly become useful and profitable both to you and to me. And then he goes on. He says, I am sending him who is my very heart. <laughs> it's like, I love this guy. I really love this guy as if he were my own self. I'm sending him back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me. This is beautiful. <laughs> While I'm in chains for the gospel's sake. In other words, you aren't here to take care of me. But I had Onesimus, and he did it on your behalf. Do you understand, Philemon? Philemon? He was God's gift from you to me. I know you didn't willingly give him, but now he's here. He's my gift. He's been, it's your gift on my behalf. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. I'm sorry, I just read that and I just go, wow, I wish I was that smooth. <laughs> it's amazing how he took that whole thing and just simply says, you know what, I, I'm, not, I'm not a control freak, I'm not trying to run your life, I'm not telling you how things do, but I just want you to understand who Onesimus is to me and how much I love him and how much I care about him and how important it is to me that you show him every kindness and you no longer treat him like a slave, but you treat him like a brother. And then he goes on to talk about his love and respect for Onesimus. He says, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. And I love the next phrase. 
Not to mention that you owe me your very soul. <laughs> but I'll pay. I'll, I'll pay for it. I'll cover it. But you'd be going to hell if it wasn't for me. Don't self forget that. I do wish, brother, he says, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. In other words, bless me with this. Give me this blessing. Refresh my heart in Christ. And then he says, confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more. <laughs> I love this guy. <laughs> it's almost like, oh, and by the way, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. <laughs> in other words, he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to be dropping in. <laughs> so whatever you do, I will get firsthand information <laughs> on. So just... Just saying, just saying, Oneth, uh, Philemon, you know, you're going to have to face me no matter how you, regard, you react. Well, again, I, I mentioned this briefly and I just want to emphasize it in kind of closing. What I think the reason why we have this letter in the Bible today is because I think Philemon did what Paul asked him. He set Onesimus free. I believe he did because... And I think he wanted the, the church to know this. I think this man became a reformer amongst the believers, that he began to challenge other slave owners to take the same attitude towards their slaves. And he was proud of what he had done. And the apostle was proud of what he'd done. And the churches became proud of what he did. Because you have to understand, prior to this, it probably never had entered into Philemon's mind that there was anything wrong with slavery. It, it was what he grew up with. He had slaves raising him as a child in the house. That was something that was just part of life. It was everywhere in the entire community. And for suddenly to have somebody say to you, do you understand that this contradicts God? This is so contrary to the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. And this began to destroy slavery in the Roman world. And it became the basis for the destruction of slavery in the, in the beginning in the 16th, 17th century when Christians began to lead the charge. And that's one of the things that just you know, gets overlooked. People like William Wilberforce was a Christian who, based upon Christian values, spent his entire life fighting for the outlawing of slavery in the British Empire. And it became, and it eventually spread to America and was the source of the abolitionist movement. Based upon what principle? Based upon the idea that as Christians, this is an abominable practice. Now, one last thing I would say to you is, I would to God that slavery didn't exist. But it's estimated today in the world there are at least 20 million people who are slaves. Slavery exists all over the Muslim world, Middle East, and, and, and even in many places in the Far East. It's still something that's, that's commonly practiced. And even though people may, uh, may say, well, it's morally reprehensible, but if within radical Islam, if I can be kind to put it that way, it is still believed to be okay to have a slave. There's nothing, Islam does not condemn, the Quran does not condemn slavery. So there are many, many people who are still enslaved in this world. And uh, even within our own country, there are people who forcibly enslave people into all sorts of terrible situations. And it's, it's a thing that as Christians, we should never ever think that the, that battle is gone or that it's something that we shouldn't concern ourselves with. It's something that is unfortunately uh, still functionally alive in, in much of the world today. So there you have it. Let's pray. 
Father God, I pray that you would just, uh, uh, as my stated goal every week, that we would just get excited about these books of the Bible. We would see their profundity. We would see their relevance. That we would read them as the Word of God. They're not just the, the uh, it's not, not just a matter that Paul was inspired, but rather, as the Scripture itself said, the Holy Spirit was speaking through him to deliver these truths to our lives. Lord, help us not to be just people who gather information and know stuff about the Bible. We don't want to just know the Bible. We want the Bible to know us. We want its truths to penetrate our hearts. We want it to have a, a deep impact, Lord, that as we meditate upon your word, not just read it, not just memorize it, but we meditate upon it in the solitude of our private time with you, God, that it would just begin to transform who we are. It would change our character. It would change our appetites and our desires. And Lord, that we might be able to more effectively live out our faith every day. You know, Lord, we need your help. We know we fall short every day, Lord, but yet we press on to the prize, the high calling that's in Christ Jesus. Lord, let me be more sanctified in my faith tomorrow than I was today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You just stand and we'll praise God together.